Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you to our praise team for doing such a great job. I didn't know you could pack so many good songs into one uh, chord thing there. So anyhow, I don't know anything about music, so there you go. Um, we have been in a series. By the way, it is homecoming, and we are glad to see everybody here. We see some familiar faces from years past. It's great to have everyone here. Um, and yes, we do have uh, lunch, and I, the word that I heard was we've got way too much food. So I'm excited about that. We'll, we'll see about that, right? Uh, at least for some of us. Um, so we've been in a series traveling through looking at the life of the Apostle Peter. And uh, today we actually come to the end of the first half of that. Uh, we looked at Peter in the Gospels, and then we've, we've been looking at Peter in the um, Acts of the Apostles. Um, and now we're going to next week begin going to Peter's actual letter that he wrote, uh, First and Second Peter. So I look forward to sharing some of that with you. Um, today's text comes from Acts chapter 12. Uh, this is the story of Peter's deliverance from prison. He's thrown in prison. He's going to be executed the next morning by Herod. And um, then the church is praying, and Peter's delivered, and we see this whole dramatic thing unfold. So look forward to sharing that with you. Acts chapter 12, our scriptures, Acts chapter 12, verse 1 through 5. I'm going to ask, if you would, to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. This is kind of the introduction to this whole story of Peter being delivered from prison. So here we go, Acts chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when they had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was for him was made to God by the church. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so again, that's the introduction to this whole story. We're going to come back to that at the tail end of the sermon today. Um, so just hang on to that for a little bit. But let's go ahead and jump into the actual story of Peter in prison and his deliverance itself. So look at verse four with, or verse 6 with me. Verse 6, it says, Now when Herod, so who are we talking about here? Well, this is Herod, not Herod the Great. This is the grandson of Herod the Great. This is Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I was the king of the Judean province from 41 to 44 BC, or AD. So roughly three years. He was appointed by uh, the emperor at the time, who he was a childhood friend of his. I think it was Claudius. I'm not 100% sure about that. But anyhow, you can check it up. Google me later. But anyhow, so Herod Agrippa, he's the uh, king of this territory. And that's really helpful to know because we know that we can date this incident in Peter's life. So we know this is around 40, sometime between 41 to 44 AD, probably a couple of years into Herod's reign. He's trying to establish himself amongst the Jews, trying to show that he's going to be a friend of theirs. He's going to be for them. And so he takes this, uh, this antagonist, uh, the apostle Peter, and puts him in jail with intent to kill him. He had already killed James. Um, so that's about 10 years after the Lord has resurrected from the dead. Back to verse 6. It says, Now when Herod was about to bring Peter out, that is to bring Peter out for his execution, on that very night, so on the night the night before Peter's to be executed, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. He was bound with two chains, plus sentries were placed before the door, that is outside the door, and this unit of soldiers, it says, were guarding the prison. One of the commentaries notes that the fact that Peter's sleeping between two soldiers, and he's got these two sets of chains that are shackling him up, and he's got two sets of, or he's got two guards outside the door, and he's in this, uh, in this prison, that that reveals that uh, Herod knew that 
Peter was a prominent political figure, and that he knew that Peter had thousands, literally thousands of backers, thousands of people who had come to faith in Christianity. And he thought, you know what, these people might try to do something crazy. They might try to spring Peter out of jail, and so he makes sure that that's not going to happen. In addition to these four soldiers, we know from extra biblical documents that this would have been one of four sets of soldiers that were guarding him through the night. So every three hours, these saw a new set of soldiers, soldiers fresh set of eyes would um, come and change out. And so 16 guards in all, plus all the other prisoners that were in the prison. And so you've got 16 sets of soldiers guarding them through the night. And so you've got lots of soldiers around, lots of people to, uh, to have to deal with. I got a picture for you here. This is where archaeologists believe that the apostle Peter would have been kept the night before his execution. This is the model of the temple complex. That's the first picture there. You can see the temple itself and then the outer court around it. Um, and this is actually in the Israeli Museum, but on the northwest corner of the temple complex is a, what is called the Antonia Fortress, or Antonia's Fortress. You can see that um, this is basically a bunkhouse or a barracks for all of the guards that were working there at the temple. So they had lots of people with spears standing around to make sure that there was no funny business going on, as well as the Roman soldiers who would have been occupying that space. So there's lots of soldiers inside of this area. Um, you can imagine that Peter, deep in the dungeon of this fortress, this is not some place that a bunch of fishermen and a few ladies are going to break him out of. Still in verse 6, it says, Peter was sleeping. Skip forward to verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. So an angel shows up, and Peter, who is still sleeping, uh, slept right through the angel appearing. He slept right through all the light that this angel brings inside of the prison cell. I mean, somebody comes and shines a flashlight in your eyes or a big bright light in your eyes. Even if you're in a deep sleep, you're going to start to kind of blink and rouse. But Peter does none of that. So Peter's still over there sawing logs. It says, verse 7, that the angel struck him on the side and woke him. The Greek word there that means it's interpreted strike uh, or struck is the word patasso. And this is more than just a nudge. This is more than just a, hey, wake up, wake up. This is literally, uh, it's used when somebody's uh, in a fight and they're literally striking somebody else. And so this is hitting him in the ribs. It says that he hit him in the side. He struck him. My question is, how in the world is Peter able to sleep when tomorrow he's going to be executed. Did anybody find that a little bit odd? That Peter's over there sitting slawing logs, this angel shows up, bright light in his prison, saying, hey, get up, has to literally strike him in the side to rouse him, and it's the middle, of the, I mean, he's going, to be, he's going to be dead the next morning. Is that, is that not, anybody else find that kind of odd? We'll come back to that in just a little bit. End of verse 7. The angel said, get up quickly. The chains fell off of his hands. You say, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Time out for just a second, Gordon. Angels, chains falling off. I mean, really, could this not just be some sort of a fantastic myth that evolved over years after Peter had escaped from jail? Perhaps there were some sympathizers, some of the Roman soldiers that themselves became Christians during Peter's imprisonment, and they wanted to free him from jail. Could that not have been what really happened, and that this whole business with the angel was just something kind of the church made up afterwards in the aftermath? Well, I suppose that could be possible. However, flip over in your Bible to Acts chapter 12 and verse 18, part of the story. We learn there what happens to these soldiers when Herod finds out that they're 
prisoner had escaped. It says in verse 18, Now when day came, there was no little disturbance amongst the soldiers over what had become of people. Peter, people were looking this way, they were looking that way, they were running all through the, through the Antonia fortress trying to see if maybe Peter was hiding out someplace. Where has he gone? The reason for their desperation, verse 19, And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined, that is, he questioned the sentries, and then, listen to this, ordered that they should be put to death. A Roman soldier knew that if they lost their prisoner, they would lose their life. That was just the deal. And so it put making sure that prisoner doesn't escape at a very high bar. Um, and so the idea that this would be an inside job, that soldiers uh, were, were sympathetic to Peter, perhaps they had become Christians. Well, those same soldiers knew that the next day they wouldn't be seeing their families ever again. Those same soldiers knew that they had kissed their children goodnight for the very last time because they knew the next day when they ushered Peter out of the prison that they, were all, they themselves were going to lose their lives. So uh, kind of an unlikely scenario. As for angels, we've got angels attending to the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane written about by the same guy who writes the book of Acts in the, in the Gospel of Luke. We've got an angel appearing to Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus, announcing that she's going to conceive supernaturally. We have an angel in the Bible telling Joseph, fear not to take Mary as your wife. We have angels appearing in the sky above the city of Bethlehem, announcing the birth of the Savior, singing uh, glory to God in the highest. Again, all of these accounts written about by the same guy, Luke, who had no problem reporting that there was an angel that appeared to Peter in the prison and helped him escape. Luke had no problem accepting that angels really do exist. If we stumble over that, listen now, if we stumble over that, perhaps it is because we are being influenced by the secular, God-denying world in which we live. Something to think about. What we do know and can confirm is that Peter really did escape this prison. We have first century law documents that reveal that Peter really was in prison, that Peter really did escape, uh, that report his detainment, that report um, the execution of James, that report the escape of Peter. And then Peter's not killed for some 20 more years. He's killed by the hand of Nero, the Caesar, in Rome itself. So we know that Peter escaped, that that really happened. It's just how do we explain it? Was it something supernatural? Were there angels involved? Did God send an angel to deliver Peter from this? Or perhaps it was some sympathizers that aided Peter's escape. I think it's important for us to remind us that Peter himself gave his life defending the Lord Jesus. He gave his life defending his resurrection, defending the miraculous accounts that we read in the scriptures. If Peter knew that all of this stuff was just a big lie, wouldn't he have told Nero, hey, look, uh, Mr. Emperor, um, somebody has put you up to this stuff. And I don't, I don't know anything about this. I don't understand why, why, I'm a, why I'm even here. Guy resurrected from the dead? Nah. All these miracle accounts? Nah. But, friends, Peter went to his death uh, defending these miracles. He stuck to his story. If you're here today and you've never entered into a real and personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and you've been hedging at the thought of becoming a Christian yourself. Because Christianity, while it sounds really nice, I get to have my sins forgiven. All this stuff about miracle accounts and about angels, it doesn't seem to fit into my secular trained perspective of ultimate reality. Well, you'd be right. It doesn't fit into a secular trained uh, view of reality. And so if that's tripping you up, let me say to you that one day when you exhale and breathe your last breath, 
every one of us is going to find out whether or not eternity is real. The problem is, at that point, it's too late. The Bible says that we are presented with the truth now. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. We are given the opportunity to act on that information now, or we can put our faith in what the secular world wants us to believe and just hope for the best. Peter had the benefit of seeing the resurrected Lord Jesus and experiencing these miracles. He gave his life to defend it. Something for us to think about. All right, let me paraphrase what happens next. The angel leads Peter through the fortress complex. Verse 10, they pass the first guard. They pass the second guard, it says. And then they come to an iron gate. When they come to the iron gate, it says the iron gate opened of its own accord. This was a massive iron gate, not some little small thing that goes into your garden. Uh, The angel leads Peter outside down a side street, and then it says that the angel disappears. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So we're introduced here in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12, to a character that becomes very prominent in the early church, a guy named Mark. He also is responsible for writing the gospel of Mark. He becomes a missionary uh, companion of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. He's a prominent figure in the early church. Verse 13, Peter knocks at the door. A servant girl named Rhoda, which translates rose, came to answer it. Verse 13, verse 14, she recognizes Peter's voice. And in her joy, here comes the funny part, okay? I, 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 was, I was chuckling out loud in my office this week. Uh, so she hears Peter's voice in her joy. She did not open the gate, uh, but she ran upstairs to go tell everybody who was praying for Peter that he would be rescued. Hey, look, Peter's down there at the door. She just leaves him outside. I mean, that's kind of funny, right? Um, here he is out of prison. He's probably looking around going, you know, somebody's going to see me. I want to duck back inside the house. But in any case, she just leaves him outside. Well, the story gets even better. The folks out holding the prayer vigil, praying for Peter's release, say to her, verse 15, you are out of your mind. Now let us, don't bother us, let us continue to pray for Peter to be delivered. Um, that's great Bible humor, right? I mean, that's sitcom-worthy stuff. Uh, there they are praying for Peter to be delivered. He's down there at the door, and when their news comes, they are praying fervently and honestly, and they just ignore the news. So nobody believes it. Um, now, um, Meanwhile, last verse, verse 16, downstairs at the door, Peter, he continues to knock. He continues to hope somebody will come back to the door. Rhoda, Rhoda, come back. Um, And so it says that when they finally opened the door and saw Peter, they were amazed. All right. Well, I know that's a long story. It's a lot to take in. And um, I appreciate y'all hanging in there with me. But that means it's time for us to stop and ask the question we ask every week around here, which is, what difference does all this make to my life? Um. I got three differences that this makes, or three points of application. The first two are going to cover kind of quickly, and then the third one we'll spend a little bit of time with. Point number one, the first difference that this makes to your life and to mine is that this story demonstrates that in order to have a biblical worldview, in order to see the world the way Jesus sees the world, in order to see the world the way the Bible sees the world, a biblical worldview, that must, then our worldview must include a belief in the supernatural. In order to have a biblical worldview, our view of the world must include a belief in the supernatural. We've got to believe in the unseen world. If there is no place for the supernatural in our concept of reality, then we are kidding ourselves that we are a Bible-believing Christian. Without a belief in the supernatural, Jesus is nothing more than a nice moral teacher who tried to help us get along in a tough, tough world. 
Rather, Jesus and the Bible writers paint a picture of ultimate reality that includes the supernatural. On one occasion, Jesus um, was teaching his disciples, John chapter 14 and verse 2, and he's talking about heaven itself. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it was not so, would I not have told you that that was the case, that I go to prepare a place for you? In other words, would I have said that, that there's a place that I'm preparing for you, if it was not true? He says in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The Apostle Paul writes about the spiritual reality to life, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, For we do not wrestle, wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, there is a whole world that is unseen by our natural eyes, but that the heavenlies see clearly. Um, I had a, wanted to tell you a little bit about this fellow named John G. Patton. I've got a picture of him for you here. He was a Scottish missionary. Um, he served in what is today the islands of Vanuatu amongst the new, back then it was called the new, and then I don't even know how to say the name of that word, but anyhow, that's what it was. Now it's Vanuatu. Um, the people, the native tribal peoples that he was serving were known to be cannibals. And so this was very worrisome. In fact, when Patton got there to Vanuatu and began interacting with the, with the natives, he realized that they were a very dangerous and a very treacherous uh, group of people. On multiple occasions, they tried to kill both Patton and his wife. One night, some hostile tribesmen surrounded his mission headquarters with an intent to burn it to the ground and to kill Patton and his wife. The two of them prayed through the night, asking God to deliver them. When daylight came, they were surprised to see their attackers turning and leaving. Kind of a strange thing, they thought. Why are they, why are they going? I mean, it's just me and my wife here in this little grass hut or wherever it was that they happened to be. A year later, the chief of the tribe, his heart was softened to the gospel, and he gave his life to Christ. In their exchange, Patton asked the chief, why didn't you burn the house to the ground that night? I mean, you were there, you had all your soldiers, all you needed to do was advance. The chief reported, well, who were those men who were with you? Patton said, there was no men, it was just me and my wife. But the chief said that he had hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords surrounding the complex. Patton realized that God had sent his angels to protect them. Friends, the clear and unequivocal view of the Bible is that there is an unseen realm, a spiritual realm, where God and his angels operate and where the devil and his demons try to frustrate. Point number one, the first difference that all this makes to your life and to mine is that as Christians that our worldview must include a belief in the supernatural. If we are to accept a resurrection from the dead, friends, I propose to you that we accept the rest of what the Bible teaches without equivocation. Point number two, the second difference that this passage makes to your life and to mine is to note the prayers of the church and how they had an impact on the outcome of Peter's situation. What would have happened, this is just a question, what would have happened to Peter if the church had not prayed? If the church had just said, you know what, we're just going to go to bed ourselves and come what may, and just resign themselves to whatever, whatever happens, happens. I mean, would God have allowed Peter to be executed? Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But the fact that Luke points out that the church was praying seems to insinuate that those prayers made an impact. He's trying to link together the activity, the prayers of the church, and Peter's deliverance. 
He says in verse 5, but earnest prayer for Peter was made to God by the church. The prayers of the church and God delivering Peter in a supernatural way. Peter, prayer moves things. Um, I don't know if any of y'all listen to 92.3 in the mornings, but at the end of one of the guy's broadcasts, he always says, and never forget the power of prayer. Um, And that's exactly what this passage is pointing to. In his own letter to the church, James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, said it this way. James chapter 5 and verse 16, he says, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. Friends, the connection cannot be missed. There is power in prayer. And that when the people of God assemble in fervent and earnest prayer, stuff starts to stir in the heavenly realm. This is the view of the Bible. This is how Jesus saw the world in which we live. And we're going to have an opportunity in just a little while uh, to pray collectively for the start of the school year and to see God work. Point number three. The third difference that this makes to your life and to mine is that sometimes God does not help. Sometimes God does not help. Sometimes there is no rescue. Flip back over with me to those verses that we read at the beginning, Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So Herod realizes he has an opportunity to get into the good graces of some of the local Jews, certainly of some of the leaders. And so he begins to persecute the church in and around Jerusalem. It says that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That is, he cut his head off. Now, this is not the same James that's also reported in the Bible that writes the book of James. That was James, the brother of Jesus. This is James, the brother of John, who was one of the first disciples that Jesus called there by the lakeshore. This was James, the disciple, uh, later an apostle, who was part of Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. James would be the first amongst the apostles to die a martyr's death. He would not be the last. But this situation does raise for me a question. Why was Peter rescued and not James? Fair question, right? I mean, the same God that had the power to deliver Peter is James's God. So why not? I mean, if you would deliver Peter, why not also deliver James? Um, And that's one of those questions that people have wrestled with down through the ages. If God had the power to deliver James, why didn't he? Didn't God love James the way he loved Peter? I mean, he was part of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Did God fall asleep on the job? Did he miss the fact that James had been arrested and that it snuck up on him? Oh, no, Peter's being executed. I'm sorry, James is being executed. I mean, aren't God, you supposed to be the omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing God. What were you thinking? Why did you let this happen? Again, these are curious questions. Perhaps we've asked questions like that with regard to our own situation. God, why are you letting this happen to me? Don't you see the broken relationships? Don't you see the pain that I'm experiencing? Why didn't you intervene Perhaps he still can. So come on, God. Bring all that power to bear in my situation here. Let's get on with it. Let's have some help here. Things don't have to be like this. You can change the situation. This reminds me of Jesus' own prayer request in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knelt down in the quietness of the night. He would be on the cross the next morning, and he prayed, Luke 22 and verse 42, Father, if you are willing, 
remove this cup from me. Friends, that is a prayer request. Remove this cup from me. Did Jesus want to go to the cross? Did he want to be beaten and publicly humiliated? He had seen men die on crosses before. He knew what he was going to experience the next day. Does Jesus want to die like that? It doesn't sound like it. But, what, but look at what he says next, verse 42. Nevertheless, it's a powerful word. Nevertheless. In other words, whatever happens, whichever way you decide for this thing to go, it's not my will, but yours be done. You know that Scottish missionary John Patton did not always experience God's deliverance. His wife died during childbirth while they were on the mission field. Seventeen days later, the infant baby died. No one was there with him. He had to bury his wife, bury his infant child with his own hands. Nevertheless, it's a powerful word. Friends, I don't have the answer to human suffering. I don't have the answer as to why bad things happen to good people. We serve a sovereign God. He is in control. We serve an all-powerful, omnipotent God. He can part the seas. He can speak galaxies into existence. He can heal a man born blind. He can uh, cause iron doors to open of their own accord. He can change and fix whatever it is that is happening. And we also serve an omniscient God. He knows what's going on with you. Nothing that happens in your life is a surprise to him. He saw it coming. He saw James being executed. But when we consider all this, all this, it does make us wonder why. God, why did you let this happen? God, why don't you fix this situation? Again, you have the power and the wherewithal to do that. Again, I don't have the answer to that. But what I see in Peter and in Jesus' response in the garden is that our role is not to dwell on the why. Why is this happening? Why did that happen? Our role is to pray for a better outcome. But if that outcome does not happen, our role is to accept God's sovereign plan. To join the Lord Jesus and James and Peter and John Patton in saying, nevertheless. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I think I need. Or what would solve my problems or heal my broken heart or my broken relationships or my broken body. It's about what you, sovereign Lord, believe is best. Friends, God looks down the corridor of time and God knows the end from the beginning. It may not make sense to us. Why again did James have to die? I mean, he was loaded and ready to go out and share the gospel. He could have been a terrific partner in this whole thing. So, God, I say to you, like Jesus said to you, nevertheless, it's not about what I want. It's not about what I think I need. It's about your will being done. And if that means, God, that i got to walk through fire, and if that means I've got to bury my wife and my children myself out on the mission field, and if that means that I have to stand alone at school, that means I have to stand alone at work amongst my peers. Then, Lord, whatever your will, that's what I want done. Friends, that is the most courageous and perhaps the most difficult prayer for any of us to pray. We want comfort. We want ease. 
We want safety and security, and there's nothing wrong with wanting those things or praying to God, petitioning for those things. He told us to pray for our daily bread. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, that's a tough prayer to pray. I know that many of us have arrived here today with struggles in our life, ongoing struggles, and we would love it, love it, if God would solve those problems, that he would bring healing supernaturally, that he would bring deliverance supernaturally, that he would restore relationships supernaturally, that he would supernaturally deposit $1.3 billion into my checking account. <laughs> There's a long line at the, at the gas station the other day. And praise God if he does, right? But can we praise God if he doesn't? Peter lay in the prison cell the night before his execution. He was sound asleep. Friends, that's evidence of a man who is perfectly at peace with the will of God. That's evidence of a man who has perfectly embraced and accepted the will of God for his life. May God help us to have that same manner of faith. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we thank you for giving us a fresh look today at our own circumstances. Lord, we, we don't have the benefit that you do of looking down that corridor and seeing how all these things that are happening in our lives are working together for your glory. God, we just ask that you would help us to be people like Peter and James and John Patton. And of course, like the Lord Jesus, who would pray and beseech you and ask you and petition you for your grace and your mercy and your supernatural intervention and deliverance. Lord, that we would also be a people who would, after our petitions, would pray, nevertheless. God, in these quiet moments of communion this morning, we give it to you. We place it all in your capable hands. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.